Hosea. We got to chapter 11 in Hosea's prophecy. And uh, all of this chapter is in fact written as words directly from God. Always when we uh, read the, word, the, the Bible, we hear God's word. But in some points like here, it's as if we're hearing uh, the words from his lips. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. But the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. They sacrificed to the Baals and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck and bent down to feed them. Will they not return to Egypt? Will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? Swords will flash in their cities, will destroy the bars of their gates, put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. Even if they call to the Most High, he will by no means exalt them. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Admar? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim. For I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. I will not come in wrath. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion, and when he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from Assyria. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. That's pray. Fill our minds with new understanding, we pray, Lord. Fill our hearts with a new radiance that comes from knowing you. And fill our whole selves, Lord, with the new life that comes from receiving your wonderful gift of love. Please then, Lord, we pray, be very close to us as we study your word. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. It's in the autumn of um, either 1665 or 1666 that a young man in his early 20s was sitting in his garden musing about the world. The sight of an apple falling to the ground set his mind on a train of thought which within uh, 20 years had produced a systematic and complete explanation of the laws which govern how objects move. Of course, that young man was Isaac Newton. Newton showed how that the movement of all objects from uh, orbiting planets to uh, colliding billiard balls or even falling apples are governed by just a few simple rules. Now, Newton believed in God. Newton believed that God is orderly and consistent and uh, that he could therefore expect God's world to be orderly and consistent. The discoveries that came from that intuition are made in the most important figure 
in uh, the world of physics um, made him that for at least the next 250 years. But then around 1902, another young man in his early 20s started uh, daydreaming at his desk in the Swiss patent office. From his daydreams and uh, the notes that he made and hid in the drawer of his uh, uh, desk so that no one would discover him, came the theory which was to revolutionize physics once again. And that young man's name, of course, was Albert Einstein. Einstein said it wasn't that Newton was wrong, it was just that when you looked closely at how the world works and tried to fit it all together with, um, uh, completely, somehow Newton's description of the world wasn't complete. Einstein's genius was that in a sense he added a, he added a whole new dimension to the world of physics. He showed how Isaac Newton's description of, of the world was, um, was, was in, in one sense only two-dimensional. It was like a, a picture compared with a hologram. And uh, uh, Einstein went on to describe the world in much, much more detail so that he could fit everything together, this time from the behavior of electrons in atoms to... Uh, 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 the behavior of stars in distant galaxies and everything in between. This morning, we are going to witness another revolution. This time, not in the world of physics, but in the world of our understanding of God. It's a revolution which Hosea begins to see and yet actually after Hosea's day would have to wait 700 years before finally that new and liberating and ultimately satisfying, more complete view of God would come into clear focus. See, up to now, it's as if Hosea has been dealing with the basics. He has been showing the laws of how God works in the spiritual realm and rather in terms reminiscent of Isaac Newton's laws. Effectively, he said, there are no sins without consequences. One of Isaac Newton's laws was that uh, the motion of bodies uh, uh, when they collide, or, the, or that every action has an equal and opposite reaction. That uh, there is no movement that happens without some uh, equal and opposite movement in the other direction. Well, says Hosea, the same applies to God's laws of the soul. Every moral failure, says Hosea, has inevitable consequences, both in human society in our and in our relationship with God. He's been telling us that relentlessly, hasn't he, again and again, since uh, uh, chapter 4 at least. Remember in chapters 4 and 5, he tried to show how serious the consequences of our, our sin are in society. When people abandon love and faithfulness and the knowledge of God, he said, we soon find that the world is full of, only of cursing and lying and murder and stealing and adultery. Then we saw in chapters 6 and 7, Hosea saying, it is actually very, very difficult to reverse this. 
People may say piously, come let us return to the Lord. But once there's a momentum of sin in, uh, in this world, then to try to stop it is like a child trying to stop an express train. We just get flattened. We cannot do it. Then uh, in chapters 8 and 9, do you remember we saw that Hosea pointed out that despite the fact that Israel said they acknowledged God, they were not really listening to him. Then in chapters 9 and 10, he took us on that tour around Israel. We saw that last week and tried to show how actually from the beginning they had forgotten God, how that pattern of behavior had grown and grown and grown until in Hosea's day it was irredeemable. These actions were bound to have an equal and opposite reaction, he says. The nation of Israel is bound to go into exile and be condemned. People more generally are bound to face God's judgment. Because every sin must have its parallel judgment. Actually, Hosea has used the image of a marriage breaking down help us understand that basic lesson, hasn't he? He says, Israel's been unfaithful to God, her husband. Surely it's a law that's absolutely fundamental universe, uh, to the universe that we must react in judgment and rejection. If, uh, if you've dealt with a, with a marriage in which one partner has rejected the other and been unfaithful to them, you know and you've seen how those equal and opposite uh, emotions naturally, inevitably, rise in the other partner. Just a law of this world. Well, says Hosea, if we have rejected God, then surely there must be that natural equal and opposite reaction in his heart. Simone Weil, who was the uh, French mystical writer, described that, that truth in, in terms of another of the Newton's laws. She said it's like gravity. Gravity pulls us. There is an inexorable pull built into this universe that draws us in an inevitable reaction. To break it is to break the laws of the universe. Well, chapter 11 of Hosea is going to show us how God breaks that law. How God himself actually overcomes that inevitable consequence that Hosea has been explaining to us again and again and again over these, uh, these weeks. And uh, he's going to show us that it's actually not that he breaks the law, but like the discoveries of Einstein, he shows how there is a greater, fuller law which somehow transcends what we know in our experience and allows God's unfailing love to shine through. Let's not move too fast, though. Let's, let's look at how... Uh, uh, Hosea once again describes this, this natural law that he's been describing again and again in, in the first seven verses of, of chapter 11. He describes it this time not in terms of a marriage, actually, but in terms of a father-son relationship. 
He shows God's love. But then in response to the rejection that we uh, throw in God's face, his pain and his anger too. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt I called my son, he says. God um, had seen Israel languishing in slavery like a helpless child and like like a father calling his son. He'd called Israel out of slavery. He'd called Israel into the promised land. But uh, sons are not always willing to be called. Verse 2. But the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. They sacrificed to the Baals. They burned incense to images. Now, we've we've got a dog who, uh, like a lot of dogs, has a, a problem which he claims is of the ears, but I know is of the mind, called selective deafness. You can call him till he's blue in the face, but if there is an interesting scent or an alluring bitch uh, just a little way off, he just will not come back. All you can do is stand there shouting with with a rising sense of impotent rage. Imagine how much deeper those emotions go when it's a father calling his son. Perhaps you've seen it. Perhaps you've even experienced it yourself. There is deep pain and there is deep anger in such circumstances. Imagine then how much deeper still is the pain in the heart of God the Father who has been rejected by us as children. And that rejection is made all the worse because of the tender nurture that God has lavished on us. Verse 3, It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. They did not realize it was I who healed them. The teenager walks away from home, slamming the front door with a terrible finality. He's not coming back. And parents sit there thinking of happy days as he took his, his first steps, his his, his little face concentrating, his the father's heart filled with pride as, as slowly he releases that tender grip on the little boy's arms and he walks, he takes his first step. How could it possibly be that in just a few years after that, that same boy is using the skill his father gave him to walk out of the door? You know, they remember the little schoolboy who ran to them for comfort when his, when his knee was grazed or his elbow was, was skinned. Who would have thought that just a dec- decade or so later he was walking away and saying, I never want your comfort again. Verse 4, I led them with cords of human kindness with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck and bent down to feed them. 
like the most of attentive of fathers, God, God gently led his people with love and kindness. He made sure that there was no heavy burden on them, like uh, uh, the yokes that were put over cattle's uh, necks. No, he lifted any yoke from their neck. He took personal care to provide their food for them, bending down to this little child to feed him. And all that has been rejected. All that has been ignored. Is it any surprise that God feels anger? Verse 5. Will they not return to Egypt? Will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? Swords will flash in their cities and will destroy the bars of their gates and put an end to their hopes. My people are determined to turn from me. Even if they call to the Most High, they will by no means, he will by no means exalt them. It's the logical, natural process. And we actually see it working itself out in thousands of homes and tens of thousands of relationships in this country every year. We love that love is rejected or abused. What alternative is there? Only the most ridiculous person could say, I feel no anger. When someone turns away from that relationship, there must be anger, mustn't there? You can't keep loving someone who is rejecting you. So marriages break down, teenagers leave home, love dies. Very common, people say, the love died. It's a natural law of action and reaction. It's it's gravity. Talk to an average divorced couple and they know all about that law. It is sad, it is painful, but life is like that. He did this, so she did that, so he did the other, so the relationship ended. There was a sense of justice in one sense, working itself out. Gravity was having its way. What we don't realise is how that process is natural to God too. He built justice into the universe. So when we hurt God, shouldn't we expect that anger? Shouldn't we expect that he, he, he has that, that deep sense of need to, to, to vent that pain on us? It's like um, setting off an explosion like lighting a fire, like dropping an apple. There is no such thing as an anti-detonator that can reverse the effects of an explosion. There is no such thing as an anti-match that can reverse the effects of a fire. There is no such thing as anti-gravity that somehow will magically make that apple go back onto the tree. Well, actually, yes, there is. See, that's what God goes on to talk about. Verses 8 and following. He has explained his natural law, which is true. 
But now he goes on to explain that there is a supernatural law as well, which is extraordinarily at work in this world. Sometimes it's identified in the Bible by that word that we learned some weeks ago, chesed. Do you remember God's faithful covenant love? In the New Testament, it's called grace. That means God's free gift of forgiveness given to us despite the fact that we do not deserve it. But uh, look at how that starts to be expressed in this chapter. God says, I cannot allow this, this natural reaction to be the ruling reaction. Verse 8, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Admar? And how can I make you like Zeboim? Admar and Zeboim were, were two minor towns associated with the great towns of Sodom and Gomorrah who were judged and destroyed. How can I treat you like these two towns? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. I will not come in wrath. In other words, God's saying there is turmoil at the very core of my being. My natural law of justice has somehow butted up against this immovable determination that I have not to give up on my people, not to give up on the promises that I've made on the, uh, for them, not to give up on you and I. And one thing is for absolute certain, that is not going to be resolved simply by uh, one or other of those things just giving way and disappearing. God is not going to just simply ignore his laws of justice, which are, which are built into the fabric of this world and built into his character. In fact, uh, Hosea is starting to give us a clue as to how he's going to work that great collision out. Because he's showing us that God is willing to suffer. There is agony in God here. Some, some theologians speak boldly of God's impassibility. They mean he's not rocked by emotions. They say he does not suffer. They are absolutely wrong. The Bible tells us that when we, most, when we penetrate most profoundly to the core of who God is, we see a God filled with emotion. We see a God who is suffering. God is in agony here. And his anger and his love are colliding within his own heart. Hosea can't see how that is going to resolve. It will have to wait for 700 years until finally we see God expressing his compassion and his love that he feels here for the people by standing alongside us as a man, Jesus Christ. And God is finally going to resolve this anger that he feels towards us by absorbing that anger within himself as God the Father punishes God the Son on the cross. 
See, he will finally exhaust that, that um, just uh, necessity that he has to walk away from those who walk away from him, not by walking away from us, but by actually walking away from his own son so that Jesus cries on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here in Hosea 11, God has cried out in agony, how can I give you up? How can I hand you over? And his answer to his own question will be, I won't, I will give myself up. I will hand myself over. I will absorb my natural law within my own being so that my people can enjoy my supernatural law of unending love and infinite forgiving grace. Verse 9. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim, for I am God and not man, a holy one among you. I will not come in wrath. By an extraordinary surprise, he could only work that out because he is God and not man. But he could only achieve it by God becoming man and paying our penalty in himself. You know, there are an awful lot of people in this world who actually don't really feel that they need grace. They think, actually, that they, they can be satisfied with, the, with, with, with this Newtonian view of the world where uh, we just balance out all the good things by all the bad things and uh, everything's all right. Let me ask you if that's you. Does a bunch of flowers compensate for an adulterous relationship? Or a box of chocolates? Or a diamond ring? Or a house? Once a relationship is, is broken, you see, it is enormously hard to mend it. It will only be mended by grace not law. By the hurt person actually saying, willingly, I will absorb the pain of that broken relationship in myself. I will not make you pay. And that takes a miracle. Ah, but we say, well, it may take a miracle in human relationships, but surely that... Uh, uh, God can just do it like that, can't he? See, we misunderstand. Humans find it difficult to forgive because of our, our finiteness. But we only have a small price to pay, a small price to absorb. We say, I forgive you, I will not make you pay for this. It comes out of my pocket, the... The cost will be in my heart, not yours. 
And really, there's not a great price. But when God pays and absorbs within himself the pain of our broken relationship with him, actually the price he pays is infinite. To uh, walk away from our infinitely good, infinitely perfect uh, creator is immeasurable. When God says, I will not make you pay for this, it is infinitely more difficult for him to do, not infinitely less so. It actually cost him the death of his only son to be able to do it. Some people perhaps even think they have done nothing wrong with their lives to to need to ask for that free forgiveness. Jesus was quite clear with such people. He said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So-called righteous people can try to make their, their own way to heaven by those basic laws of action and reaction. They don't need me, he says. I'm not here for them. I've come for those people who sense they need this supernatural forgiveness and grace. I've come for sinners. The only people who need to bother with Christianity are sinners in need of grace. The rest may leave. I'm so glad no one has. One of the most distressing things, though, that I see sometimes is, is, uh, is amongst Christians who begin with grace but then seem to forget it along the way. You know, when they were converted, they had a strong sense that they needed God's free forgiveness. But, but after a while, the, the Christian life for them seems to be all about doing enough to keep that place in heaven. Law rules after the first day that we're converted. No, it does not. God's grace is what keeps us day in, day out. Churches that forget that actually start to lead a a double life. They become ruthless in their punishment of moral failures because they've forgotten that we all need grace. They uh, develop, in fact, uh, a sort of uh, double life, hiding the, th- the problems that are going on in their lives, either spiritual or moral, because uh, they have been told that you must keep up a good face, must keep up appearances. It is no wonder that sometimes the church are called hypocrites. More than one person's mentioned to me that they've got a bit down as we've gone through chapter after chapter of the... Um, Uh, the austerity of Hosea, especially as we've tried to apply those uh, uh, criticisms that Hosea makes to ways in which professing Christians can be deceived by our petty idolatries and our our growing self-righteousness. Now, I'm actually glad that we felt uncomfortable. We need to feel uncomfortable. There is a sense in which Christians need for the whole of their lives to feel a little sick. Because when we do, we will be found always knocking at the door of Dr. Jesus. When we do, we will be found uh, taking that vital medicine of Jesus' 
free forgiveness bought by his death on the cross every day, day after day, to keep us healthy because we know we need him, not just at the beginning of our Christian lives, but throughout our Christian lives. The terrible thing is that actually self-righteous Christians always walk away from the cross. To walk away from the cross is to walk into idolatry. We need God's grace. True church is is full of people who fail. It's full of people who struggle. It's full of people who sense that they need this, this supernatural forgiveness. Yes, they will be transformed. They will improve and start to look better. I don't doubt that. But they will not be transformed in the sense that they forget their need of of forgiveness. They will be transformed in the way that Hosea describes here in verses 10 and 11. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from Assyria. And I will settle them in their homes. True Christians are people who come trembling to God again and again and again and ask his forgiveness and receive his grace and live together as forgiven failures. Now it is possible that you came in here rather reluctantly this morning, that you, you, you thought you frankly are not good enough to be a Christian. Especially when you look around at all those upright people. You think, I could never join this lot here. You should hear some of the stories I've heard. You should hear my story. And you would know that you do not need to be perfect I would not be here if I was perfect. I am telling you about God's grace because I need God's grace every day, every hour. I wonder, do you? All any all of us needs to do is come trembling to him. Come saying, Lord, I recognize myself as a person who has walked away from you, like this son walking away from God. I recognize that by rights you should walk away from me. But you've made a way back by absorbing the the infinite pain I have caused you in your son, Jesus Christ. I come to you. I appeal to your unfailing love. Please forgive me. Long time ago, a rather grumpy and uh, irascible man, who therefore knew all about his daily need of forgiveness, wrote a famous hymn. It was the hymn Rock of Ages. The man's name was Augustus Toplady. The third verse goes like this. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. 
naked, come to thee for dress, helpless, look to thee for grace, foul, I to the fountain fly, wash me, Saviour, or I die. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, for each and every one of us, we pray that you would open our eyes enough both to see how by rights we can have no right to come to you and how by grace, grace won for us by Christ's death on the cross, we can come and say, wash me, Saviour, or I die. Lord, for us who have said that many times before, renew it in our hearts, Lord, and keep us ever sensitive to you, never covering that pure life with the mire of self-righteousness and idolatry. And for those of us who've never said it, Lord, put those words in our heart right now and give us new life that you promise. In Christ's name. Amen.